Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon, bringing clarity to the unidentified and what we like to call the phenomenon. And here today we, with us, we have a special guest, the legendary Richard Dolan. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. James. Uh, it's really nice to be on. Have I actually done a show with you in this on your channel before? No, we haven't. I had you submit a, a clip. For yeah, a yeah. What people don't know so is that you and I have known each other for probably more than 10 years. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I was going to say, I remember, and I, I was going to say, I don't even know if you remember. I messaged oh, yeah, you I on, yeah, on Facebook. Like You had a big head of hair back then. You were like this 20-something-year-old <laughs> yeah. kid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you were pretty active. Like I knew you from my Facebook page. You were there a lot. And I thought, I really like this guy. And <laughs> I, I had, I really did. I had this really good feeling about you. And I just thought, I really, I hope he sticks around. You had to be like 23, something like that. Yeah, you, yeah. You were, you were a young kid. But you were very uh, like on top of the UFO field back then and um, enthusiastic and just smart. And I thought, I hope we get to keep him. And now here you are doing amazing work. I appreciate it, Rich. And, and like I said, back then, I would have never imagined that, you know, I'd be sitting here doing a, a podcast or interview with uh, Rich Dolan. You know, that's insane. Um, I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what has Rich Dolan been up to these days? What are you doing now? Uh, well, a couple of things. So. I mean, the main, the immediate thing that I'm working on actually concerns you and a number of other folks. And that's an online conference that um, we're doing for May 20th of this year. I call it UFO Secrecy in a Changing World. And the main thing is that like, I am presenting two completely fresh uh, presentations on what I think are quite relevant uh, subjects for the field, but I've got you and the other young guns. Do you guys <laughs> even use that phrase at all? Or is that no. just... I mean, other people around us use it. We don't use it ourselves. No, right. You're like the aviary. You guys don't use it among yourselves. Everyone Correct. else calls you that. So I've got you, uh, Danny Silva, uh, Jay over Project Unity, and Joe Mergia. Uh, I love all you guys. I think you're all just amazing. And then, of course, I got Lou Elizondo, uh, who I'll be doing a formal interview with. And then I'm bringing him on to answer questions from the attendees as well. So he'll be on for that. And that'll be May 20th. So. And my one, my one promo of that, if anyone's interested in how to learn about it, on my website, Richard Olin Members, Splash page has just got a big link to it. All you do is just go to richardolinmembers.com, go click, and you can read all about it. Yeah, and obviously for anybody watching this on YouTube, I'm going to have a, a link right in the description on the bottom, so you can just oh, go check wonderful. it out there as well. So that's the main thing I'm working on, but I, I also am uh, still kind of deeply engaged in working on the never ending quest to get volume three of UFOs in the national security state done. Uh, that's an interesting little journey, but it's great. And um, I'm just doing research all the time, actually. So I'm, I'm as engaged in this subject as I've been since I started 25 plus years ago. Yeah, and, and Lou Elizondo, I've been waiting for, for Lou Elizondo to appear on, a, on, a, on your show or on your channel or interview with you for since he's come out. Yeah. I know, it's since a weird thing, like we just haven't. We've known of each other and we have mutual, we have a lot of mutual people that we talk to. Uh, I don't know what it was. It wasn't like I was afraid to talk to him, not at all. Uh, he just seemed kind of busy. I thought there's other people doing good interviews with Lou. It's not like they're getting anything like, it's not like I would get something maybe that they wouldn't get. But I was thinking, actually, there are some questions I want to ask that I don't think he has really dealt with in the past. And um, so I think this will be a nice opportunity for me to get him. And plus, I've, I've been focused 
uh, more and more over the years, actually, on a crash retrieval of UFOs anyway. Uh, I've, I'm convinced that an acknowledgement and understanding of the whole process of retrieving that technology is probably the most core thing that we could do right now to move this ball forward. And one of the things that, of course, you hear with people like Elizondo or the other people he was associated with the TTSA, which I look at now as kind of defunct, but uh, the one thing that they would always do is this little polite fiction of, well, we don't know where these things are from or what they are. And I, every time I hear that, I just say, that's BS. They know damn well where, what these things are. But for political reasons, they can't say it, which I understand. Even so, I think, uh, you know, conversation about crash retrievals, it's, it's high time now we really start talking about that. And Lou, Lou has been pushing ever closer to that red line of crash retrievals, and he is so close to yeah. over it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Christopher Mellon, just on, on uh, the Joe Rogan show, he was saying, like, listen, these are these questions are on the table. Crash retrievals. He's saying right. how he, he heard stories from from people on the inside who have high clearances that are saying there's there's truth to these stories. Of course. And uh, and Chris Mellon's even saying, listen, you know, you got a task force. You got people looking into this. These questions need to be asked. So, you know, for for Chris Mellon to even push in that direction is that's huge. Well, yes, I agree. Now, you know, it's it's important. He said a couple. I haven't listened to all I've gotten were clips of this interview. It just happened yesterday, uh, but I am aware of some of the things he said, and this is very good that he's talking about getting into crash retrievals and getting into things like special access programs. Uh, also very important. But the fact is, with crash retrievals. Um, this has been known and well understood within the U.S. intelligence community, within pockets of it anyway, for, you know, close to 80 years. All right. It's a long, long time. Yeah. And we had uh, back in 1950, you had a Canadian government official named Wilbert Smith who was in D.C. He meets with Robert Sarbacher, who is a physicist and consultant for the uh, Defense Department's uh, Research and Development Board. Sarbacher was a genius, like a true genius, and super plugged in. And Sarbacher here in September 1950 is telling Smith, oh yeah, the flying saucers exist. This is the most highly classified subject. And Sarbacher over the years before he died, like he talked ex quite explicitly about, yep, uh, I was actually asked to participate in a crash recovery uh, conference uh, I wasn't able to do it, but I know the folks who did. I, I know, I understand that we recovered beings. Like he said all of these things many, many, many years ago. And that's just Sarbacher. You've got um, Wil Wilbert Smith himself, who was Canadian, but he had a lot of high level contacts in the US government. Back in the fifties, he's talking about crash retrievals of UFOs and quite explicitly, I should say. Um, and then, you know, you got the stories of uh, folks like Leonard Stringfield, who collected UFO crash retrieval stories for decades, uh, close to 50 years ago. Stringfield has a mass. I have his, where's his book? It's, this is 300, yeah. almost, it's almost 400 pages of dense data, UFO crash retrievals, his status reports. The information is so overwhelming that there have been programs deeply classified to obtain, uh, sequester, study, and replicate UFO tech. 
and the bodies as well. It's been known for the longest time. And the fact is we have to play this little game publicly because the, the public has been kept in such a state of deep, desperate ignorance on the truth of this subject that we're at a point now where, again, this is understandable, but you've got these people who actually know, like Mel and Elizondo, there's no question, they know so much more than what they've been able to say publicly. And it's just a matter of baby, spe baby steps, excuse me, taking the public through. Uh, but my God, the real, the true deep reality on this is so far beyond, I think what most people are aware. So in terms of crash retrievals, I think that's um, absolutely critical for us to understand. And the main reason, and now we can move on, but you've got to have a grasp of the crash, crash retrieval phenomenon because once you acknowledge that the United States military and other militaries have acquired this hardware, you can no longer pretend that they don't know what they're dealing with. You can no longer pretend that they're like, oh yeah, we're trying to figure this out. We're scratching our heads just like you. Then you can just call BS on this and realize that we're dealing with a significant, deep, profound cover-up, a conspiracy, all right? In an era where no one's supposed to believe in conspiracies anymore, but we're talking about literally the, not literally, the mother of all conspiracies, the UFO conspiracy. What's bigger than that? Nothing. And, and if you acknowledge crash retrievals, you're acknowledging the grandest of all conspiracies. Yeah, crash retrievals are like the holy grail. That's right. I mean, it's the point of no return. Once you're talking about recovered alien, you know, extraterrestrial, whatever it is, technology, and possibly bodies, that's, I mean, that's going to change everything. Um, and, uh, you know, even you have Senator or former uh, Senator Harry Reid talking about that he tried to make ATIP or OSAP a special access program right. so Couldn't. he can review possible, you know, UFO debris and they denied him access. That's right. You know, while denying him access to look at Lockheed at the same time. Yeah. And, and we're talking about, um, you know, for something that doesn't exist, you know, you have the Senate majority leader being denied access. So yeah, exactly. You can see, really see what happened with ATIP. I've had this theory for the longest time. Some people believe it. Some people are like, no, it's all an op. But it's really, you've got Robert Bigelow, who's very intimately concerned with all of this. And Bigelow has been a man clearly on a mission since the early 90s, at, at the very least, to really delve into this due to a, a, what is obviously a personal obsession with the subject. And so what does he do? What does he do? Like through the 90s, he creates organizations like NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. He gets people like Jacques Ballet and Hal Puthoff and Kit Green and John Alexander and Colm Kelleher and then Eric Davis and others to and Edgar Mitchell to um, like, let's figure this out. And so that was one aspect of it. You have all of the people associated with Bigelow, all of those guys I just mentioned and, and others who have been trying to get to the center of the labyrinth for decades. You know, they, they, want, they want in. They've wanted, yeah. the, they've wanted those secrets. They're clearly not at the center, but they also clearly all have got some good clearances. They've, they've gained significant pieces of knowledge along the way, but there's no question they are not where they want to be. Yeah. 
So, um, so you have that whole thing going on. And, and I think with Bigelow's connection with Harry Reid, they were friends, they are friends. And, uh, you know, Bigelow becoming the main contractor for ATIP. This is a, clearly a continuation of that attempt. And, and Reid was an ally. Reid too, you know, I don't, I don't know how strongly Harry Reid in 2005, 2006, 2007 also wanted to get to the center of the labyrinth, but maybe he did. Yeah, maybe he did. Maybe he's he was part of that little group. And and he's thinking, you know what, I'm in a position. I can try to set this up. Let's see what we can do. And so what I I actually think of ATIP as as a, an attempt. Uh, at least in part by that group, and I'm including now Reed in, as part of that group to have their own crack at getting to the center of the of the mission. And, you know, you go back to the 1980s and John Alexander uh, created an earlier version of this, actually, yeah. you know, it was called the Advanced Theoretical Physics Group. In, in the book out there by Howard Bloom in 1990, he called it something else, uh, the UFO Working Group, which it wasn't called that. Yeah. But, but Alexander, he's talked about this, his explicit purpose back in the 80s was, I believe there's a UFO cover-up within the Pentagon somewhere. We're gonna, we're gonna create the best team of scientists and investigators. Uh, he had Bob Wood, he had Hal Puthoff was there, he had Kid Green, he had all, a lot of the same people and other people as well. And he said, we're gonna create our own center of gravity and we're gonna get the real insider group to notice us and we're gonna get read in. That, and that is what he says was his plan. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to have happened. And uh, we can have, I, we could talk about that because I have a whole bunch of thoughts on that. But the point is, this is an old game where you've got um, people who've had good clearances, good knowledge, making their attempts to get to that holy grail. Yeah, and uh, who knows, maybe one of them was able to slip through the cracks and get a little deeper. Um, yeah, I, I would bet the answer to that is yes. Probably. Yeah. Um, you know, and speaking of uh, the crash retrievals and materials, uh, Jacques Vallée's new book coming out, uh, The Best Kept Secret, mm -hmm. uh, that actually is rumored to have to do with a special or a specific uh, crash retrieval case and uh, some of the materials that were analyzed. So that should be an interesting development. So I've heard. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, if you know, talking about the crash retrievals, do you have like a, a list or a top, you know, one or three or your, you think are some of the best crash retrieval cases? Oh, wow. Uh, sure. Uh, I'll include Roswell on that list. That's yeah. a no brainer. The thing about Roswell, it's almost certainly not, wasn't the first, but it's, it was one that where the, uh, the evidence train was so good that, um, you know, researchers were able to get to most of the, many of those witnesses before they died. So there was really quite a few, like in the 70s and 80s, many were still alive. And uh, if the original ones weren't alive, often their spouses or their kids were alive. And so there was, there was kind of a good uh, amount of data to work with. So I think Roswell is, is absolutely a very strong case. Um, I'm a big supporter of the Aztec case from March, 1948. Uh, big props to Scott and Suzanne Ramsey for doing the work on that. That was a case that, of course, was written about by Frank Scully back in 1950 and then was debunked by the mainstream media. And to the extent that UFO researchers are often a bunch of scaredy cats back then, as well as now, ran away from it because, oh, my God, someone called it a hoax. We must therefore never believe it. 
Well, it turns out it was it's a hell of a strong case. And yeah. the Ramseys, I think, have shown that definitively, definitively. Uh, Kingman, Arizona, 1953 is another one. There's not as much, but there's still very strong. In fact, the Kingman case, you could really say, was actually the first case that really kickstarted the interest in crash retrievals in the 1970s. Because it was the Kingman case that Leonard Stringfield wrote about in the 1970s in his book, uh, The the Situation Red, the UFO scene. Okay, yeah, yeah. And in that book, Stringfield, that book actually kickstarted the whole crash retrieval phenomenon. Uh, it was the year that Jimmy Carter got elected president. And Stringfield just talked about the research of Ray Fowler, who was the first guy really to research the Kingman crash. And um, they had a pseudonym for the main witness, uh, Fritz Werner, whose actual name was Arthur Stansel. And, but, but Fowler did a very, very excellent job in, in kind of resurrecting that case. Stringfield wrote about it. And that was what started a whole bunch of people writing to Stringfield saying, oh, I got a story for you. Uh, and then Stanton Friedman, a little later, ran into Jesse Marcel. Yeah. Senior. So Roswell kind of took over. But anyway, the Kingman crash, I think, is a good one. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm very intrigued by Cape Girardeau from 1941, which I think is, you know, there's not as much. Um, basically, you've got Charlotte Mann and that's about it. But I know Charlotte and she's, she has been, uh, she's talked to many, many researchers over the years. And I think that you've got a decent, at least a reasonable case for that. And then there's, I think um, you could even go back to Italy in the 1930s. And I think Roberto Pinotti has uh, kind of looked into this. And from what I've seen, I don't rule out that there was a decent Italian crash retrieval in the 30s. Yeah, that's, that's and, insane. And, you know, subsequent yeah. ones. Hmm? Yeah, I, that's insane that there's, you know, there's actually a pretty rich history of the crash retrievals, but it's it's one of the hardest subjects to research. You know, I think that there's so much yeah. there's so much uh, smoke. You know. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of smoke, and so um, and and what people don't realize is a lot of that smoke goes back even long before Leonard Stringfield kind of opened up the field in the '70s and '80s. So there are are legitimate scattered. Not a lot, but there are some good things you can kind of latch onto in terms of research and crash retrievals, even in terms of earlier evidence. So it's a, I, it's a real phenomenon. There are later crash retrievals as well. There's not, there are not really good, reliable crash retrieval cases in the 21st century that I'm aware of. That, yeah. Which is, that's interesting to think about. You know, it's more than 20 years now. And why have we not heard about a legit or at least potential crash retrieval case has policy changed has something yeah. is something different you know we, i don't really know but i suspect something is different now yeah it seems like the best ones were well, i mean the, the a lot of big ones were from the 40s really i mean some of the really big ones um 50s yeah yeah um what I, I get a little frustrated sometimes people will they trot out the same objections over and over how can super advanced aliens crash? They're supposed to be able to get here from another star system, but when they get to Earth, they crash. Ha ha. Well, actually, we don't really know what the statistics are. We don't know how many crash retrievals there have been, and we don't know what, how much traffic is going on above our heads. I suspect a lot. I suspect there's a lot of traffic going on right now 
right this minute that is unknown and anomalous, I think there's a pretty big infrastructure there. So, if, you know, if you think about aviation in our industry, we have, I mean, I think it's a one in 11 million chance of dying in a plane crash. There's pretty good odds if you fly. But having said that, we still have a lot of air traffic and people do die every year. Planes do come down every year. There are accidents. And there may be factors engaged with this other technology and these other crafts that we're, we are simply not aware of that may cause a breakdown once in a while. But it could be it could be safer than our commercial flights. We just don't know the numbers. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the big questions that people always ask. How How is it possible that you got these uh, you know, adv super advanced beings apparently or allegedly coming here yeah. and crashing. And well, the thing is, we go in with a lot of assumptions. And I think what we're better served by doing is simply looking at the evidence such as we have it and trying to understand that evidence. And you ask yourself, does, is this, is this reasonable? I mean, the UFO phenomenon in, on its face isn't reasonable. Correct. Like, I mean, when you really think about it, there shouldn't be a UFOs at all, but there are. Like, I could come up with a dozen reasons off the top of my head as to why UFOs are impossible and why you shouldn't bother studying it, but that doesn't <laughs> make the data go away. Like, yeah. the, the reports are still there, and it's the same with crash retrievals. So you can you can come up with all the reasons in the world to say, well, this is ridiculous, but the the <laughs> testimony and the cases are still there. So we yeah. don't make sense out of it. Well, and speaking of some current events, um, you know, you got the inspector general mm -hmm. that, uh, saying now they're going to investigate the UAP, how it's being handled. Um, you know, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's, that is a, a noteworthy development. So for people who aren't aware, so you've got the, the UAP task force, which of course, that's been the big thing in the UFO field for these past few months. And that report this actually, you can really say this is the first genuine government report on UFOs we've had since the days of Project Blue Book, I guess. Yeah. So more than 50 years. And uh, some people have high expectations, others do not. But there has been rumblings from within this, uh, the committee and the, and the senators and members of Congress around it that something's not right and that the task force isn't doing everything that they want it to do, which who would be surprised by that? Honestly, like how big is this task force? Like, do we even know how many people are actually full-time doing this? There's a lot to research. So anyway, there's been this sense that, you know, they're not necessarily doing everything they want. So let's have the inspector general's office, which is the kind of like an oversight body in the Pentagon. Now they usually investigate criminal activities and things like this. And they explicitly said, we're not investigating any wrongdoing here by the UAP task force. We're just essentially, we've been asked to provide a kind of, an, uh, I guess some kind of oversight role just to see if, if the task force is, is actually doing a decent job. I don't know what their mandate actually is, but it is good. I think that you've got at least uh, some pressure from outside the task force to have them step up their game a bit. Yeah. The fact is they've got their work cut out for them. And I, I really wonder how successful they're gonna be in A, getting decent reports at all, and then B, having a substantial number of them that are unclassified that we can actually read because there's gonna be a classified portion of that. It's probably gonna be the dominant portion anyway. And uh, how much actually will be released to the public that's going to be uh, 
really like moving the needle at all. I, I don't know. I would, it would be nice if, if some things, maybe a couple of good photographs, a couple of good reports, uh, video maybe, probably, um, whether we're going to get actual statistics, like wouldn't that be nice if they were to say, yeah, we've actually found like 4,732 UFO <laughs> reported cases, like that'd be great. Wow. Okay, good. Uh, somehow I don't think that'll happen. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have an expectation range all over the place. I mean, some people are, you know, they read the headline, they're like, oh, it's going to be like disclosure. And then other people are saying, oh, nothing's going to happen. I, you know, likely I think there's going to bring, uh, there's going to be some new data brought forward. Um, but I know Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon were saying, listen, you know, this should be an interim report. Um, and they need an extension because they're given an impossible task. Sure. And, you know, Chris Absolutely. Mellon has said, listen, you got um, to like a couple guys working on this. It's not this whole task force like it sounds. No, right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I probably think a couple of guys who, you know, you have to wonder what was their area of knowledge starting out? Are they complete noobs going in with zero background? Totally possible. Like we wouldn't really know who these people are, how much they've known. or Presumably they can navigate their way through some of the, the labyrinth of the Pentagon's bureaucracy, but have they been able to get into the DOE? Did oh, Mellon yeah. talk about the DOE in his interview? I he think did. He, he did. mentioned it several times. Yeah, you know? so that is that is significant, all right? That's very significant. So the question is, will the UAP task force actually get into the DOE? I'm gonna take a wild guess, no. Right, right. yeah, because- No, will they be able to get into the CIA? I'm gonna take a wild guess, no. Now you've got, you've got basically three, as far as I can see, three fundamental areas where this SAP, the special access programs are really deep and profoundly entrenched. Pentagon, which, okay, so maybe they'll get into, uh, you know, all the offices like that Admiral Thomas Wilson tried to get into 25 years ago. Maybe they'll try to do that, um, where there's almost zero ability for them to do so. And there's like maybe two or three people who might have any oversight at all over that anyway. So there's the Pentagon, but then you got the DOE and you got the CIA. Those are the two other big areas where these special access programs are known to exist and strongly believed to exist relating to the UFO subject. And, yeah. you know, I mean, once you get into the SAP, the special access programs, now you're dealing with privatized corporate power, which is really dominant. And everyone has known that the corporate power is really, it's where the brain power is, it's where the money is, and it's where all the personnel are who are engaged in those programs. Yeah. And I, you know, I just think expecting the task force to be able to penetrate that is, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I don't think they're going to get that far. And I think part of the thing, you know, with the New Yorker and having Senator Reid come on the record and talk about Lockheed, I think they did that strategically to, to place some pressure on because I think they know. Possibly, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. The task force, I thought so too. The task force, there's no way that they're going to be able to get through to that. And I know Christopher Mellon, he, you know, he cited a specific um, code and law you know, I forget what was section 109. He's saying specifically uh, the the code that is responsible for protecting what he called waived SAPs or right. what, you know, other people would call unacknowledged special access programs. And those are, I mean, that's, you know, apparently where all the good stuff is. That's right. And uh, 
it doesn't look like they're going to be able to get there without uh, like a serious an like act a, of God. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's what they've said. That's what they said. An act of God. Oh, did they? Know, did they? Commander Miller. Commander Miller said that. And he said, there's no way in hell that um, because by definition, they're unacknowledged. So the oversight exactly. on them is not. Um, I call not, it. I call it legal illegality. Yeah, it's, it's basically it's illegal, but they get away with it. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of classified law that's allowing them to do this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And no, and it is that section. Classified Think about that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's our world. We live in the upside down world. But anyway, um, I think it's good that this is happening. I'm glad that uh, Chris Mellon said the things that he did. I'm going to have to listen to that interview. I haven't listened to any of it. I just heard about it. But I think it's very good that, you know, on a, a venue like Joe Rogan, that we're having a conversation, even about special access programs. Like, I don't, I don't think most people are really aware of what that even means. So if, if there's more people talking about it, that's all to the, all to the good. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, speaking of all this, you know, we have all this kind of, uh, confirmation going on. We're kind of moving in that direction, mm -hmm. um, where the public for the first time and, and senators and congressmen for the first time, like they're still like waking up from a daydream, you know, it seems like every, every the members of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that a lot of them had no idea that this was a serious issue. I think a lot of them probably did think that a lot of this was nonsense. Um, well, they're not, look, some of them are genuinely intelligent and some are just kind of, you know, lifted up and dropped in and they're not all that, they're not all, they're not all that bright. I'm not trying to be mean here, but they're, you know, they're just politicians and, um, they got to look good and speak well on the camera and use their little cliche talking points and, you know, work for their sponsors and the people who pay for them. And so they're not, you know, UFOs has been a no win situation for right. politicians for generations. So of course they're going to be ignorant about it. It's a bit shocking that Rubio was willing to talk about it yeah. at all yeah. over the last you know year. That's been kind of amazing. But we're we're in a new we're in a new era in terms of the public's uh, the public conversation on UFOs. And really, this has been happening since 2017. We're just in a, in a new place. Uh, once once Elizondo and Mellon got those first three videos declassified, and that was them. They really did that. And props to them for doing it. And uh, once that happened, and they worked with Leslie and Ralph over at the New York Times to get the first couple of articles out, we've been in a new a new ball game here in terms of our ability publicly to talk about this subject without it being so hampered by the, you know, the stupid ridicule and the smart, the, the snarky uh, uh, <laughs> articles that had existed for years and years. At least we don't have that now. So we're in a position where we can actually have a conversation, some level of a conversation. We're still not yeah. where we need to be. Yeah. And um, so a, a lot of people are concerned of, the, the threat narrative, right? So there's some people that take that out of context and uh, there's some people that are genuinely worried about it. They say, you know, people have been talking about they're, they're gonna use the UAP issue to spin some kind of false uh, threat um, that they, they perceive doesn't exist. And that, 
you know, this is going to be like a opportunity for the military industrial complex to capitalize um, either just by bolstering itself um, or on the other extreme, people are saying there's going to be like a false flag alien invasion type scenario, you know, uh, Project Blue Beam 2.0. What, what are your thoughts on that? All right. How much time you got? <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously. Well, just a basic threat one. I mean, you know, where people look, are look, saying. Look, the United like, States government, the U.S. military intelligence community is the king of false flags. So let's just put that out there. Like they are, there is no organization in the world that is better at doing false flags than the United States. So that has to be acknowledged. The United States has, since the end of the Second World War, the United States almost has almost monopolized false flags. I mean, not completely, but the U.S. and its its upper tier allies, mainly the U.S. though, and usually this is in the form of political coups and manipulation of foreign media and domestic media to create all kinds of crises that don't exist. Uh, I, of the opinion, I don't want to get your, your channel ding, but I've done things yeah, yeah. on 9-11. <laughs> and, yeah. And they get demonetized or whatever. But uh, I'm a believer in that false flag. And I don't mind telling anyone, I think that was a false flag. Uh, I don't know every single detail about how it went down because I wasn't part of the club to do it. But there's more than enough to tell me that there's a lot of BS about 9-11. And it didn't end with 9-11. We'll just leave it there. So the United States in uh, conjunction with the media establishment, which of course works hand in glove with the national security apparatus. Uh, they're very good at rolling out threat narratives, scaring the hell out of the people and getting them to do what they want. But now ask yourself, all these people talking about TTSA and Mel Elizondo and Mellon doing this and trying to whip up fear. Well, it's been three and a half years, okay? Where the hell is the fear on this? Like if, if this is a threat narrative, they're doing the shittiest of shitty jobs in, in terms of whipping <laughs> that fear up. Sorry, but like this is the truth. Like the media is not following up. There's no coordinated media effort whatsoever on this alien threat. No one is talking about it. You have yeah. Elizondo, it's like he's howling into the wind on this issue. No one's listening to him. And, but, but, I know exactly why, to the extent that they've talked about the threat, I know exactly why they're doing it. It's the same reason I talked about it in my first two volumes of UFOs in the national security state. What I did is I focused on military encounters with UFOs. Why did I do that? Well, I didn't exclusively focus on that, but I, I knew for a fact that if the United States military is bumping into these things and they're taking them seriously and they're scratching their head thinking who the hell is behind this and this and they're violating sensitive airspace like here i am 20 plus years ago thinking wow that's very important i'm going to focus on that why because <clears throat> when you have the military pretending that there's nothing to it and yet you are seeing all of these military encounters like you want to focus on this like shaking people by the shoulders and saying pay attention there's something important going on here. That's exactly what they're doing. And furthermore, they are both in, in the defense community. Of course, they're gonna think in terms of a potential threat. I mean, they'd be idiots if they didn't. They'd be utterly negligent 
in doing their job if they didn't. If you're running an air, an air base or a military installation and these round objects are coming in en masse and hovering over your facility and they're not supposed to be there and you send interceptors up to get them or anti-aircraft battalions to deal with it and they can't do anything about it, uh, yeah, you're, you'd better be taking it seriously, even if they're just hanging out. Maybe they're not attacking you like it's Independence Day, but that doesn't matter. The fact that they're able to do what they're doing, that is what matters. And that's been going on for almost 80 years that we know for a fact. So yes, of course, it's a potential threat. Anyone who says otherwise is just, you know, playing in fantasy land here. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a genuine existential threat. True, but that's irrelevant. If you are in the military, if you're studying this, and also if you're trying to get the attention of a, of a dumb, dumb Congress and a dumb, dumb media that's lazy as anything else and does like you've got to figure out a way to get their attention. So of course they're gonna talk about, well, maybe it's a threat. And you know, Elizondo, look, maybe it's the Russians, maybe it's the Chinese. You know, he doesn't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously he doesn't, but every now and then they bring that up. Yeah. Why? Well, it's obvious why. Because they, they're afraid to say, well, we think it's aliens because people will laugh at them. So they're yeah. trying to maintain some kind of public standing here. And the point is to get the political establishment to look at this. And that is all they're trying to do. If this were a genuine threat narrative, like a false flag, a CIA op, which some people keep saying, I think you would have seen a much more concerted media effort. We know what false flag media efforts look like. We've all lived through them. You have a concerted single narrative that is rolled out, that is powerful, that is unified, it's coordinated. We're not getting any of that with this, like none, all right? And you know, the ridiculousness, I mean, really the stupidity and absurdity of saying, well, they're trying to scare the public to bump up the military budget. Like, are you kidding me? Are, is someone actually that ignorant geopolitically, politically, in terms of his, to, to think that that's actually what, how they would do it. Like, no, they're already spending a billion dollars a year on the budget, which by the way, we can't afford, we're probably gonna go bankrupt in the next couple of years anyway, but they're already spending, a, excuse me, a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. Let's say billion, trillion. <laughs> you don't, they don't need the alien, and they also don't need the alien threat to create a, a totalitarian global digital system, which is being done anyway very much without promoting an alien threat narrative. They're already going that way. We're already creating, recreating human society as one big giant anthill, as I like to call it. It's already happening. You don't need aliens as a threat to do that. So uh, no, the people are gonna have to make, and they need an evidence-based argument too, if they're gonna start saying that this is an op, like at least give, give us something to work with and no one's giving us anything. Yeah, yeah. That's and blue beam, I'll just say this. So the blue beam thing, the alien invasion, the holographic displays. This actually was generated back in the early 90s as an idea by a, a man named Serge Monast who was, lived in Quebec. I don't even think he spoke English, frankly, but somehow he had a friend at NASA who told him that NASA was going to create a false, this wasn't even an alien invasion initially. This was a false yeah. second coming of Jesus. Yeah. To deceive people and he had this whole theory worked out of like, we're, they're gonna create false archeological finds. How, I don't, you know. Uh, yeah. And they're gonna take people away from the one true faith and put them into a new world order, basically a satanic new world order. Uh, that was his original theory. He died 
Some people say he was killed, but if you look at the guy, he was very like in bad health, smoke, chain smoke, like I think he just died. But anyway, so by the time 2000 came, which was when I think he predicted it, didn't happen obviously. Yeah. Uh, in the aftermath of that, it started to morph into an alien invasion thing. But it originally was just a false second coming of Jesus idea. It, was, it had a very strong Christian evangelical flavor to it, which that went away and then that got taken on really by the new age community, essentially it went from the Christians to the new agers and then the kind of UFO alternative field and they, they took it on. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and now, you know, uh, you have Dr. Greer's new film coming out and that's, he takes it a step further than, than blue beam. And it's, he says there's actual PLFs and, and, uh, ARVs yeah. that they're going to PLS programmable life forms. He's talked about that for many, many years. So he, yeah. he, I think, correct me, you, you may know this better, but all the PLFs are human created, black budget creations. They're, they look like aliens, but they're not aliens. We just made them ourselves. Yeah. 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 Is he and, saying, uh, I think he's saying the grays are PLFs unless I'm, unless I miss something along the way. I, th I think he says, you know, of course the bad ones are, are, are all the bad ones are PLFs. Yeah. Yeah. And the good ones are, are genuine. Um, you know, you get in that slippery slope argument and I'm not, uh, look, I'm not going to try to like throw down and have a big fight with Stephen Greer about this, but I mean, first of all, people can disagree. I like, I like to think that we can disagree respectfully with each other without accusing each other of like working for the dark side. Uh, so what I would just say is those types of arguments strike me as deeply ideologically based in a lot of ways and, and based on what people want to think the world is it's the same argument of people who say oh well we have to we must ban all space-based weapons platforms like you know which was the theme of his 2001 press conference one of the big themes for that and uh, you got people still saying it today and you can agree with that all you want but that's not going to change the fact that it, that's calling for it is just total fantasy land it's never going to happen yeah i mean in today's world and it's like if we don't do it um you know, you have the concern of other other governments are going to do it anyways. <laughs> exactly. So. Look, if you want to have they a military, if you want a successful military in any sense, especially if you want to dominate like the United States or Russia or China do, it's not even, it's not negotiable. You must have a secure militarized uh, space-based weapons platform. You must. Uh, otherwise, all those little smart drones and smart bombs and everything else, they're not going to work at all without <laughs> without the satellites up there like in with that the enemy will shoot your satellites down like it is an inevitability it's an inexorable law of the 21st century and i don't like it any more than anyone else does but you know talking about having to de-weaponize it because we're alienating the aliens essentially is what dr greer's argument was i just think is um it's fantasy yeah. And uh, I mean, if there were advanced intelligences visiting us, I don't think they would expect us to just drop all, you know, all, even our defenses. But um, well, they're not just visiting, man. I think. I oh, think no. They're, oh, of course. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're much more than visiting. Uh, I think they're very much, very much the actions as much down here on the on the ground as it is up in the skies. What do you think of the ultra terrestrial hypothesis then? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, let's just say you've got a, one idea is that you've had a branch, a break off human group from long, long time ago that sort of went its own way. Is this how you're envisioning it anyway? 
Um, yeah, there's that. Yeah, there's a little, there's varying. Of, You've got uh, interdimensional. I distinguish ultra-terrestrial from interdimensional and from yeah. extraterrestrial. Um, interdimensional is interesting because are they coming from some other dimension that we can't quite understand? I think in part that, that could be actually quite true. I don't think it's exclusive to the ETH either. But ultra-terrestrial, I mean, my take on it is simply you've got uh, a splinter group, Earth-derived, yeah. that went off on their own, kind of an early breakaway civilization, maybe you could see it that way, that developed its own, uh, you know, its own breakthroughs long, long before we did, the rest of us did. Yeah, I think it's totally possible. I mean, I don't know, it's not impossible. Yeah, I, I don't really know how, how much more significant it is than saying extraterrestrials or whatever. They're, they're whatever it is, they're not us. And they're basically alien in a strict sense to what we are. So I'd like to know what the answer is. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on uh, ultra terrestrial lately. And, you know, you have Lou Elizondo. He's been talking about the, uh, you know, a lot of the UAPs or UFOs coming from the ocean and, we don't mm -hmm. know what's down there. So he's. it seems like he's kind of steering the conversation that direction a little bit. Uh, well, that's a good thing, actually. You want to you want to get into more discussion of water-based objects because it is, it's something that researchers have looked at for a long time, but there have been a, a very small minority of people who've done that. And we need to have a, a much better understanding of the fact that there are ocean-based sightings quite a bit. And also, Elizondo, I think, probably more than anyone else has been very good at talking about transmedium yeah. uh, capabilities, you know, going from water to air. Also very important. It's important to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, yeah, he says that, you know, it's one of the five observables. So yeah. they're able to just maneuver in water almost like it's as, as if it's not there, <laughs> you know, yeah, water to air to space. And yeah, a lot of, you know, we've known for a long time, there have been, it's tough to get these reports because they're all military because really when you get a, a fast moving undersea object moving at like a hundred knots or more, which has happened, but they, they have to come by way of leak out of the military. And so it's always a little dicey in terms of the, you know, what do you do with the evidence? But there's, there are enough of these stories out there. I think it's obviously happening. The US Navy, the Russian Navy, they encounter these things at high speeds and we don't have the ability to do that at least not officially. You, what you need, if you're gonna have something that's gonna go that fast with the ocean, you're, you're looking at a new science. You're not looking at standard physics. You're looking at, some people talk about scalar and vector potentials, and they're talking about a way to create a field around the object so that it's not, it doesn't interact with the environment the same way that we do, where we're getting resistance from the elements. Somehow yeah. they're able to, to work around that with, a a revolutionary science that does exist. And I, I think it's pretty obvious it's been worked on very much in the classified world in certain circles, probably Lockheed, Boeing, <laughs> places that no one is able to get into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I want to transition a little now. And um, you wrote a book, I, what, I think it was, I don't know, I forget what year it was, After Disclosure. It was 2010. 2010 was the first yeah. edition of that. And then yeah. we did a second edition a year later. Okay, yeah. So, you know, given the current situation, everything that's gone down, you know, all the ways that this, uh, you know, confirmation of what's gone on since 2017 has occurred. Do you have any kind of like revisions of that idea? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Some of the themes in that book? Well, we, we did, um, uh, I co-authored that book with Bryce Zabel, who, um, what a, he was a great guy to work with. We had a good 
uh, teamwork in that book. And our purpose back then was to, like we, we would joke, we're, we would say like, we're a think tank. We're not, we're not doing psychic predictions. We're like a think tank and we're gonna try to kind of game plan out the, you know, can, can UFO secrecy ever end? So how might it end? That was one question. And then the other question is if it ends, what happens next? Like basically that's what we tried to do. And uh, I'll just say that the primary takeaway that I got out of writing that book was the utterly radical nature and the radical way in which a true UFO disclosure would transform our society. It's like, it would be an absolutely revolutionary thing. And that of course made me realize, oh, well, that's why we've got so much secrecy. Like this is such a hugely profound transformation that it's obvious. And what the main thing that I saw, and I think I'm sure Bryce saw the same thing is that we saw disclosure happening like as an avalanche. Like, you know, on Monday, it's like nothing's happening, but by Thursday, the world's upside down. Like it would be like this quick thing. Um, and in the environment of 2010, it, it's, that seemed like it would be possible. In 2010, you had, you know, you had the legacy, legacy media that was obviously completely dominated by national security and corporate interests. We all knew that. But in 2010, there was still, there actually was freedom on the rest of the internet. Like there was freedom on Facebook, <laughs> believe it or not. There was freedom on YouTube. There was freedom in uh, social media in general and, and Twitter, there was freedom. So what we, what we thought, I certainly envisioned even then that the day would come when there would not be freedom. Um, I will say it happened faster than I expected. You know, by 2015, you could already see like it was significantly changing. So the big difference, I guess what I'm saying is that when, when we wrote that book, we thought if there is an admission by, you know, a government official who has the authority, like a president, but, but some other high level person that UFOs are real, just that, we thought that's gonna like turn the world upside down. And people are gonna think real, but you've been saying for 70 years, they're not real. You've been lying all this time. What else have you been lying at, about? Yeah. And we need the truth. So that, that was how we, and how I envisioned it. And that's not what we've seen. Yeah. <laughs> so what we've, what we've yeah. seen since 2017 is you have this admission, like the US Navy, they had to be dragged into it a bit. I mean, Elizondo and Mellon forced this issue. People need to understand. The Navy didn't want to go down this road, but they were basically forced into it. And so after about a year and a half, they're like, yeah, actually those videos are real. And yeah, we do have UAP encounters and we don't know what these things are. Like, so they made these official acknowledgements. And I, I still think like if that had been made in 2010 with the right uh, kind of media support around it, or even, even without the media support, but just a, a, a free social media, a free internet, which we don't have anymore. I, th I think things could have changed. It would have been a different situation. And the avalanche thing that Bryce and I were thinking of could have happened. But what's happened is that in the intermediate period of time, we've seen tremendous consolidation over the rest of the web so that you've got dishonest algorithms basically running the show. Like you try to do a search on UFO on YouTube. That's a yeah. fun little adventure. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd. So, um, so we're not in, so, so the public conversation has been very much manipulated so that with these revelations that are actual bombshells, like when the Navy makes these admissions, 
that's huge. And yet essentially nothing has happened. So now it's, I shouldn't say nothing because there has, it might just be a case where we're still waiting for that other shoe to drop. Yeah. And we might, we still like, there is a potential for that avalanche effect to happen. It is possible. And um, I don't, I don't think that is a desired outcome by the establishment that has this power. I, my personal opinion has always been if they have their way, they will drag this secret out for five years if they have to, for 10 years, for 50 years, for 100 years. If they are able to drag it out for another century, they will do it. Yeah. But because there's no, they don't gain anything by putting this out there. There's a lot of risk. There's a tremendous amount of risk in putting some of this information out. But the fact is that there are a number of players involved and no one is, a lot of these people are not on the same page. So uh, there's a bit of confusion. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. And, uh, you know, although I think at some some point before the, the 2017 thing happened, somebody or, you know, some group must have made some decisions that let's just go through with this, you know, regardless of repercussions. And um, it's probably went better than they expected, I think, to some well, degree. Yeah. Oh, they hit, a, they hit a grand slam home run. For, I mean, for yeah. what was available to them. Yeah. We're talking TTSA here. And, um, you know, I mean, they've, they've had their part. They were representatives of a faction. Every power structure has factions. 2000 years ago, you had Caesar and Pompey and Crassus. And that was then, this is now. There always are factions. And, and there are always people who are in the in crowd who have different ideas about how to proceed. We know for a fact, anyone who's studied UFO history knows that there have always been factions within the power structure that actually have wanted to promote some version of what we call disclosure. Back in the 1950s, Donald Kehoe wrote about these people, people who opposed the secrecy group, as he put it back then. There are yeah. always factions. And so we have to understand, you know, the, the, the power elite isn't a monolith, it's a labyrinth. And it's, it's like a maze with all of these different centers of power. It's, it's Byzantine in that sense. So with TTSA, what you have is a situation of a number of people who have their own agenda for whatever, whatever their ulterior motives for promoting a, a, a pro-UFO belief. Personally, and I haven't gotten this from any of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they just all want to make a couple of billion dollars each as contractors to get in with the in crowd and to get some kind of contract because they do know things and maybe they think that they can become part of the game. They're not part of the contracting game, basically. I mean, Bigelow is a, a small player, but not a major one. Maybe that was their game. Maybe, maybe their game was more personal than that and they just want, they just want the truth for themselves. But anyway, they have, they have allies and they have enemies. Like we know they've had enemies and they still have enemies. And, you know, when the people calling like disinformation op, like I, I don't really think that they have any appreciation of just this little path that these guys have had to navigate. I think it's a yeah. very, very careful path. And they're being ultra, and I think they're probably scared out of their minds right now for a number of reasons, which I don't want to even get into. But I, I think that they have their own worries, their own fears. So, um, and I've been predicting for several years now that I think TTSA is probably just going to die at some point in the near future. And, and I think they have died. 
you know, you've got, I mean, the, the, some of the people they're still doing their things. So Elizondo and Mellon are still doing their thing, but they're not, they're not formally part of TTSA anymore. Yeah. And it's unclear to me that that organization as such is really going to be doing anything in the future. I mean, I don't really know what role. You know, not certainly, there. not certainly the same without, um, you know, especially Lou and, and Mellon. I mean, they they're, are they're really- the core the power movers, they have really right. forced this thing on everybody. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's um, Hal Puthoff, who's an absolutely brilliant man, but he's in his eighties. What is he going to really be doing here? And how is he going to be? Mush- and, and he's not someone who has ever wanted the public spotlight. He's yeah. not going to, he's not going to be doing things. There's Tom DeLong. He's not going to be able to, DeLong can't do much on his own with this. Uh, there's a few other folks that are still there. I don't know how active anyone is. So yeah, I think they're kind of, um, I think they're circling the drain. That doesn't mean that the individual members have no future. They've all got things that they'll be doing, I'm sure. But I just don't think that TTSA itself has got much of a, I mean, unless some miracle happens, I just don't think they've got yeah. much of a future. Yeah, I think, I mean, for, for um, you know, more or less, they, they accomplished what they set out to do, at least the, at, at the bare minimum, right? They made a huge impact. And they, they made the UAP or UFO uh, subject serious. An impact which, that no other researcher or organization has ever been able to do. Right. They yeah. are unique. Yeah. No one else has done what they did. And I, I think in that um, regard, you have to say they were a success. You know, I mean, Absolutely. I had, I, when I heard their plans, I never thought that they were going to be able to build a spaceship because you know, that kind of theme, I, I, I thought it was like, wow, that looks like a cool model, but you know, that would talk, look- They were talking a good big game there, weren't they? No, I mean- Well, because you're talking about, that's like SAP tech, that's special access program that's right. stuff. Yeah, you know, right. it, even if you were able to do it- who's The amount of money involved yeah. in that. <laughs> like billions and billions, you know. It's never gonna um, happen. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, I, I also wanted to get to uh, C5. You know, and when I say CE5, I'm not talking about the CE5 protocols. I'm not talking about Dr. Stephen Greer. I think I've, I've made this argument pretty loud in the community that, you know, when you're talking about CE5, what we're really talking about is a human-initiated contact. So some people have called it heist now. Um, but we're also talking about contact in, a, in, in kind of like a broader sense. But um, the idea that, you, you know, somebody has the ability you know, not that they're special, they just maybe have an affinity to it or openness to it, to go out and, uh, and initiate a contact experience, um, which I think is, is pretty cutting edge, you know, considering, um, you know, you have this phenomenon and your people are trying to research in all these ways, you know, what better way than try to go to the source itself in, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it's, and I know you've had act- success with this. I don't think I have any mojo. I, I mean, I've tried, look, I've heard about it. Like, I'm going to see if I can do it. I've, to my understanding, I've never had the slightest bit of success. I must yeah. truly suck at that or I'm doing something <laughs> yeah. wrong. Um, and I, you know, I don't think I have a closed mind. Uh, yeah. I actually believe in the, the power or at least let's say the potential power that human consciousness does have in this, uh, the grand scheme of things here. I mean, I'm not saying you can always create your own reality all the time. Like that's no, no. Yeah. A lot of that is just total fantasy, but, but, but there's power and there, we live in a world in which I don't think we fully understand this reality that's around us. 
And there are weird things that happen in this reality. And so I think we've got to be open to, how did Fox Mulder put it back in the X-Files? Extreme possibilities? That's <laughs> the way to look at it. I think that's, but that's true. So like, I know that you've had them, you've, you've had success with it. I just, from my part, I have none. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's kind of like, I, I, I already knew it was possible just because I had the contact experiences before. And that's what led me to go into CE5 because I had these contact experiences and I was seeking answers. Yeah. And um, when I heard about CE5, I'm like, that's exactly what I experienced. There was, it wasn't just like I had a sighting. There yeah. was um, some kind of, you know, connection, you know, there's some kind of consciousness thing. Jay and, over uh, Project Unity is giving me a couple of his CE5s and like, they're interesting. They're definitely yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the idea of the consciousness uh, and, and the UFO, um, you know, mm -hmm. that's nothing new. And so when people say, oh, you know, they it's discount important. it so quickly, you know, you have Jacques Vallée who wrote the book, UFO is a psychic solution. And he goes through a history of different um, means in which, you know, people have had psychic experiences with UFOs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's basically what we're talking about with CE5. That's what CE5 is in a sense, yeah. you know, yeah. um, at least one aspect of it. Uh, so when, you know, high strangeness, the whole idea of high strangeness was that Heineck and, and Ballet saw these, you know, anomalies that they couldn't explain. Right. And uh, they had to call it high strangeness because they were observing more than 50 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, it's all telepathy and just about every contact encounter that you can find. Um, there's some kind of telepathy or, or message people feel or impression people get. It's, it's the rule. When you yeah. hear, when you hear stories of, of people saying like an alien's flapping his gums and talking, like that's when you should be a little bit concerned uh, because yeah. normally communication is perceived telepathically in all kinds of stories. Now there are many encounters of, of uh, with human looking beings that do speak. So, but even with yeah. those, there's often a telepathic component that's described. So yeah, there's something going on there. I've explored this many times in a lot of my writings in my book, uh, UFOs for the 21st century mind. I wrote, you know, seven years ago or so. I talk about it there quite a lot. I actually really try to grapple with it. And in my last book, which I just wrote about six months ago called The Alien Agendas, um, I discuss it there as well. Like this is, it's a, an integral part of the phenomenon in general is this telepathic, and that's consciousness. Yeah. Because if you're, if you're getting a message by non-traditional means, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that says something about us and it says something about the nature of the world, like reality. So there are things that we need to learn that we, we haven't really officially at least figured out and we need to, it's important. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think um, at least for me, that's been one of my driving factors as, you know, cause I've experienced it and I'm trying to figure out like, what the hell is, you know, how is this possible? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there, my friend actually has a, a podcast called Point of Convergence. His name's Exo Academian, and he touches on a lot of these subjects. And, uh, and um, I know Ray Hernandez, you know, he has the, the free organization, which is now CCRI. And uh, they talk about the, the contact modalities. And, you know, we know Grant Cameron, he, he wrote a book on the contact modalities. And now he actually did an excellent job um, putting that together because that's, he put together so many different um, means. That, of that book I don't have. I should have that one. 
that's an it's an excellent one. Yeah, I I mean and, I love um, Grant. He's he's so wonderful. Yeah. Um yeah. Thanks for the tip. I'll probably pick it up today. Yeah. Speaking of all your books, um, volume three of you know, UFOs in the national security state, I will say, anytime I've asked Hal Putoff or Eric Davis, what book should I read? They always mention UFOs in the national security state. Hooray. <laughs> so when is number three coming out? You know, I, I'll just say this when when I and first Rich, Rich, first... let me let me interrupt you real quick and say yeah. I remember somebody asking you this in an interview almost ten years ago. <laughs> no, oh yeah, and and I every <laughs> single project got in the way of it. Yeah, yeah. Ten, ten years ago, when I well, I finished the second volume in two thousand nine. Oh my god, yeah. That's, so it's a long time ago, and um, that is still the hardest book I ever wrote. That second book was uh 600 plus pages it just took five years off my life yeah but um yeah my initial plan was to go right into the third volume which would have been made my life a lot easier because like so much has happened now since then but instead i ended up doing uh, i ran into bryce zabel we did ad after disclosure in 2010 so the following year and then 2011 we did it the second edition and then in 2014 i published ufos of the 21st century mind because it was it, there's different reasons, but it was a good project for me to do. And I'm glad that I did it. Um, and then I, you know, went through a divorce and a crazy period of my life. And uh, what was I doing? Oh, then I got into false flags during okay. that period. And I'm glad that I did. I was actually going to do a book on false flags and I ended up just doing a little TV series on it for Gaia, but I wrote that and I, presented it and it was a lot of work and I'm glad I did that. Um, so yeah, now I'm, I'm actually fully back into working on that third volume and I've, it's been fun. I've actually enjoyed it. It's a lot of work. So I go through, I've been, uh, I've, I've built up a database, I guess is how I put it. So I, I created a UFO chronology, chronolo chronological database. So I've done all of my first two volumes. So what that means is I'll take a book and I will try to extract every single relevant fact that I want to extract, put in the proper citation. And I put all of them into a file in chronological order. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I know. And it seems the same. So, but I, that's my method. That's how I was able to do volumes one and two of that study. Yeah. Uh, my, my chronological database at this point, I think is equal. If like you were to publish it as a book, it would be a, uh, a eight or nine volume. It would, it would be like probably 5,000 pages published oh my, pages. Yeah. So it would be like 10, 500 page books. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's an absurd amount of information, but in the last few years, I've been, it's been larger because in the old days I would go through, you know, books and just with a pencil and check off the facts and then, and then type them all into a database. And a lot of the information I get these days is web-based and I can just copy and just dump it in. Yeah. There's advantage, there's disadvantages too. The disadvantage is like you don't internalize the information quite as well. So yeah, you're typing different. it in, like you actually, it goes through your body as it were, yeah, and you yeah. learn it better. Uh, but even so, like I've I've learned a lot of the information, of course. And my point is that I'm I'm going through a lot of different sources right now for that third volume. And uh it's it's a lot of work. I mean, honestly, I'm trying to get up to speed on all of the <clears throat> sightings even though sightings per se are only going to be part of the book, 
But people, I, I really am I'm convinced that people overlook the significance of just ordinary UFO sightings. Yeah. We think, oh, it's just another, you know, light in the sky. But what's interesting is the sheer quantity of these sightings. Like people don't realize, like here's some, something that I'd love to see the UAP task force discuss, which they won't. The fact that there are thousands of sightings every single year of low flying triangular or saucer shaped objects in the dead of night over your neighborhood and over your house. Yeah. Like when I say your, I mean like everyone's. These things are being seen around the world every single day at like three in the morning. Yeah. All right. So like, can we please ask ourselves what the hell is happening here? Why is that happening? Who's doing that? What is their mission? And yet it's being reported all the time and no one pays attention. I don't hear any, any UFO researcher really discussing this. So I think it's important. And I just think it's a, it's a symptom of, of it. It's a sign of an infrastructure that's expended a lot of whatever their equivalent of money is and their energy and their resources. And they're, they're on a mission. And that mission includes 3 a.m., low hovering, silent, <laughs> almost invisible objects that people are seeing around, around the world. And I just think that's, that strikes me as very important. So anyway, I'm spending a, a fair amount of time trying to collect what I feel are the best ones of those. And then it's just a matter of putting all the, the politics and the, you know, the ufology and the research in there as well, which I've got a lot of that. I don't know when this book's going to get done. And I don't even know if it's just going to be one more volume or if I'm going to have to break it into two more volumes, which is the last thing I want to do. Uh, four volumes, just I have no desire to do that, but it may have to happen that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's more that's happened in the last three or four years than the last 30. I mean, if, if you want to keep tabs on all the well, developments. Maybe. Did, well, A lot's happened in the last few years, that's for sure. Yeah, you had... Um, yeah, Grant Cameron, he wrote the book Managing Magic, and that's kind of like his his treatment kind of covering the history up from back then now and you know yeah. up until now of like the theme of TTSA or these different groups that came up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just even in the last few years, there's been so much, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, Me too. So, <laughs> uh, and then you're going to have to do a whole nother... Uh, a whole nother media tour for that. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I look, it's one problem at a time. Yeah. It's one step oh, at man. a time. So uh, I got to get this done. And there are other projects. I've got our, our conference event in um, about two weeks from now, roughly. So uh, that is my priority right now. I don't think I'll be doing any volume three work between now and then, but <clears throat> uh, for me, my interest right now is exploring corporate, the corporate government nexus uh, in, you know, UFO crash retrieval and studying the tech. To me, I'm particularly interested in that. I think that's actually going to become a very important and 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 hot topic soon because you know you're seeing Lockheed Martin being discussed in mainstream media. That's right. And it and it wasn't just one article. Like the New Yorker wrote the initial article, and then like. 20 different media sources published that as their headline <laughs> oh, oh, regarding Lockheed. Yes. Right. In the yeah, headline. yeah. People latch onto that. Yeah. Well, Lockheed, there wow. are, I, it is interesting. 
uh, when you t- look, I don't know that Lockheed is actually the single most important contractor for UFO tech, although they may be. But the fact is that there have been more data points connected to Lockheed than any other corporation over the years. I mean, going back yeah. to Kelly Johnson, Kelly Johnson had actually had two UFO sightings that we know about back in the early 50s, one with his wife and one with, um, you know, one, actually maybe two with his wife. And then there was one where he was uh, following up on a sighting of Lockheed colleagues. Yeah. We saw just absolutely inexplicable things. Johnson was was deeply involved in this. And one thing people do not know, I will talk about this actually, now that I think of it on the 20th, but <clears throat> there's a little known UFO, little known UFO paper that was written for President Lyndon Baines Johnson back in 1968. This is not not theory, this is known. I have uh, my own copy of most of that paper. I think that there are people who have the complete version of it. I don't have the complete, but I've got a near complete. And uh, it was organized by Johnson's advisor at the time, a guy named Frank uh, Rand Jr., who was asked by LBJ to put this UFO paper together. It's amazing. Yeah. And one of the top consultants on that paper was Kelly Johnson of Lockheed. Yeah. Johnson was, was right there. And you have to ask yourself like what, and by the way, that paper concluded that uh, UFOs are real, they are physical, and we have no official explanation for them. Like they basically said, this is a real thing. Now, a guy like Johnson, I'm just wondering, was Johnson on there to make sure that they didn't get into crash retrievals because that might be something he already knew about even back then. Just just a point of, but then you've got the Lockheed uh, story of the ARV. You know, the, the Mark McCandless who just recently passed away with his, his friend, Brad Sorensen, who's still around, who certainly did go to a Lockheed hangar with a very high level defense official back in 1988. And they saw, saw three hovering UFOs. Baby yeah. bear, mama bear, and papa bear, as he nicknamed them. And a four-star at a podium talking about them as ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles, in 1988. Uh, I believe that story. I completely believe that story. And um, that's connected directly to Lockheed as well. And, you know, there's a lot of data points. you got Ben Rich, of course, you know, who succeeded Kelly Johnson at Skunk Works over at Lockheed, talking about this in his retirement years. And and that's not all of it. There, I yeah. I mean, well, even I can't if, speak for Eric Davis, but I'm pretty darn sure he's got high-level Lockheed connections. Have been telling him things as well. Yeah. Even recently, um, you know, as of I say recently, you know, by 2014, 2015, up until now, you know, when Tom DeLong came out telling his story, you know, you, first of all, you had the WikiLeaks guy. He had one of the top guys from Lockheed that was in the um, the calls going on with him, Podesta. Um, oh yeah, Mc- that's right. McCasland that, and all that's that. That's exactly right. And not only that, he went to a Lockheed facility. They brought him in to talk about UFOs, and correct. And they're talking about consciousness and UFOs. And then they say, "Okay, I'm going to send you to somebody. Go speak to this person." So people in that network are are keen to the subject. They know at least people, and all you know those connections led him to Melon and Elizondo and Putoff eventually. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, 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 it is, it's important and it, 
and helpful to ask about those motivations. Like, why did they want to bring Tom DeLong in? Like, well, yeah. did they see something in him? Like, or did they see that he would be a useful person for their purposes, which is what it seems like to me. Well, the question is, what were their purposes? Are there yeah. purposes to create a, an op on the direction of someone in CIA to deceive the public in some significant way? Again, I've, I've talked about some of my problems with that theory, but another problem is simply, uh, what is, it's always struck me as much more safe just to let sleeping dogs lie rather than to wake this whole beast up, which is really what they've done. You know, you had a, a situation where the UFO subject was very, very safely ridiculed and kept off to the side in the public conversation for generations. And th they're the people who poked the sleeping beast and woke it up. And once you do that, it, it's not clear where you're going to end up on the other side of it. Right. So if you're actually interested in managing the narrative, the best way to manage the narrative is by just shutting the hell up and not not raising this. They yeah. don't they don't need uh, an active UFO alien threat narrative to get what they want in this world. If if you want to create global totalitarianism, guess what? They're doing it. We're creating Black Mirror very well without UFOs. Yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, a pretty that's scary thought. Yeah, and and again, I just want to point out if if this is an op. This does not follow a pattern of any false flag that I have ever studied. I've studied a lot of them. And I'm talking about media coordination. There, there is no, where, where in the mainstream media do you talk about, other than Tucker Carlson? Like he's the one guy. There's yeah. no one even at CNN following up on this. And if you're going to get into false flags, you, you, obviously you want CNN uh, as part of that narrative. And they're not, they don't seem to be participating in any threat narratives with UFOs. Yeah. yeah. And um, I also wanted to discuss the uh, the event coming up though, May twentieth. Yeah. So it's no, you know, everybody should know by now. Uh, you know, you're hosting an event with Lou Elizondo and myself. You want to say anything about that? Yeah. About well, that there's event? a lot of really neat things about it. Thank you. Um, so I mean, the content I think is is going to be very much on point. Not just the stuff that I'm presenting, but with Lou and with you and with, uh, you know, I don't want to keep saying the young guns. So the rest of the rest of the, <laughs> the young people who are doing the yeah. great research these days. But honestly, you guys are doing, uh, you guys, you, I'm talking you and Danny and Joe and Jay, the four of you. And I mean, there's Juliana Marinkovic, who I really admire a lot, but I don't yeah. know if I'd be able to get him on. And there's, there's other people in, in, I know who are in your circle. And I, I think everyone is like, it's an amazing group. It's actually an amazing group of people. And I'm just happy to get, you know, many of you involved. So there's a lot of people contributing, but what people attending, I don't think they fully realize like the venue that we've got is this, I'm showing my age here, but like people who've done virtual reality type games, like they've done second life and things like that. They, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen this type of thing. But you have an avatar and you're in a virtual environment where you can literally talk to anyone you want who's willing yeah. to talk with you. So that's actually like, we did something like this a year ago, but not with, at this level where people were able actually to, like to act like they were at an actual conference. Yeah. And on top of that, after this event ends, I think there's a minimum three hours that I will be hanging around after the fact. And I, I think that you and other guys will be too. And just to be available to talk to people. Yeah. And you can, you can drive the, the speedboat. 
which is incredible. <laughs> that was that was so fun. I I want to I want to did that. Yeah, nuts. they've got all these crazy things. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, we'll just wish for recording this on Thursday. So actually tomorrow, and I'll be doing this again. I'm I'm just going to be in, like anyone who signs up for the event can go to that environment anytime. Like you, you sign up today, you could actually go there today and hang out. And there, yeah. there will probably be other people who have also signed up who are just hanging out. So I've been there and I'm going to be there again just for a little hangout session uh, Friday evening. Uh, we'll put out an announcement, I guess, on social media and maybe on my website. But I think that'll be at eight or nine o'clock Eastern and I'll, I'll be there probably for a few hours. I'll have a beer with me. I'll just hang out and talk to people who yeah. want to talk with me. So it's just like fun things that you can do. But the event itself, like we all miss uh, engaging in-person events. Like we're all just going crazy for some social interaction. Yeah, uh, I certainly am. <laughs> I can honestly tell you. So this will be nice. It'll be a nice opportunity to meet and talk with people almost as if we're at an actual live in-person event where you can actually shake someone's hand and look them in the eye. This is as good as we've got right now. And um, I'll take it. Yeah. So what, what what's going to be the, uh, the layout you're going to have uh, the interview with you and Lou Elizondo. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm trying to remember the exact schedule. So I'm, I'm going to start, I'm doing two lectures. One is I'm going to be looking at the evolution of UFO secrecy and disclosure for the next decade up to the year 2030. Yeah. And I've got a number of, uh, macro and micro issues that I'm going to be talking about uh, and possibilities of where we are going to be in nine years from now, basically, in terms of the UFO situation, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, and then my other talk will be later in the day, and that will be uh, what I call uh, the classified corporate gold rush of UFO crash retrievals. Yeah. And I think it is. a. So I'm getting into that whole thing. So then in between, there are Lou will be on for an interview with me, I, or I will be interviewing him for 90 minutes. And then he will be on with me for a follow-up of Q&A with the audience. I'm sure like 90% of those questions are gonna be directed to him. Yeah. And he'll, he'll just have to answer a lot of audience questions, which I think, I don't know how many opportunities that that has actually been for like the general public. Just one, I think, that, that MUFON symposium. And, and yeah. you had to be there physically at the event right. to do it. Here are so people this, who do it from their home. So this is like, for, for anyone who really wants to like get on Lou's case and ask him a hard question, this actually, we're, we're putting him right in the frying pan here. And he's, he's <laughs> going to have to answer the questions. And he's, I think he's fine with it. So, so those are the two things with Lou. And then there's a panel with you, uh, Danny, Joe, and Jay, that I'm going to, moderate it, but I'm not going to be doing any talking at all. And this is really, uh, I, I think the world wants to hear the four of you talking on your most current research. And actually the five of us should get together soon and kind of go over a game plan for that. But that's, that's probably the one segment that I have the least worries about, to be honest. I think yeah. that's <laughs> going to be an amazing thing. Um, and that's, I think that's it. That's what we've got. So it's an all-day event. It'll be many, many hours. And there will be uh, a tremendous amount of interactivity from the attendees. Yeah. And again, everybody, the link is going to be in the description if you're on YouTube. Great. And uh, Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on here. You're like, it's, uh, you know, I've been following your work for so many years. Never thought I'd have you uh, here on an interview. Never thought I'd be doing oh, this. Man. 
<laughs> I, know, I feel bad that it's taken this long, honestly, because I, I love your channel and uh, I'm just glad to be here to help out in any way. I, I really like the work that you do. And uh, it's, you know, the CE5 initiative is interesting to me, but I have to say, I love your journalism and just the, the way that you're able to go de deep into a lot of these current issues. Um, I really think it's just, we need more. Fortunately, we've got a group of guys that are kind of coalesced into a, you're the young guns. You yeah, may not use that phrase, but <laughs> you're yeah. still young enough to be called it. So why not? Yeah. Oh, and you know, one of my main things with the CE5 thing yeah. is, you know, I, I, I really want to make that something inclusive. So it's not like, um, when you talk about CE5, you're you're not talking about UFOs and UAP and, you know, or if you're talking about UFOs and UAP, that you're not including CE5 in that. I think the whole idea is that it's part of the same thing. I think I think you're right. I, I agree with you. And I've come a long way on this in 25 years since I've been studying this, but I do agree with you. Well, because it's, it's like set up into camps almost. And it's like, you know, if everybody really just you know, it was more, a little more inclusive, at least to say, okay, we understand what those guys are doing there. We understand what those guys are doing there. Instead of looking at each other as factions on, on different sides of disclosure, you know, so much more could, could get done. Well, the, the, there's one, I, I know we're going to wrap this up, but I'm just going to bring up briefly. I think part of the reason for that is that there is a kind of ideological divide within ufology. It's always been there. It's almost analogous for me. This is my way of looking at it between liberal and conservative. It's kind of like that. Yeah, it's not exactly, yeah. but there's, there's a lot to that. So you've got, you've got the, it's basically the good alien versus the bad alien theory. And that's, you know, you could say the liberal point of view is the people who are like, these aliens are galactic brothers and sisters, and they're here to help us achieve higher frequency and to, or if it's 50, yeah. 60 years ago to uh, join their federation. And uh, that's, that's always been. And, and those po people are, are always like, military's bad uh, and peace and love are good. And we need to open our hearts. And, you know, like it's basically, it's like flower power. I mean, maybe to put it one way. Yeah, A lot of the new age community is all about that and so forth. And then you've got the conservative wing, which is we're under attack. Dave Jacobs is like, we're, you know, they're going to replace us. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to, uh, which nowadays would be like, that's racist. You can't say. That. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Honestly, isn't it crazy? Yeah. But, but um, there's that whole camp, which is like, there's something going on here. That's not right. And there's a danger and there's a threat. And so that's what you see. And I really believe that our political ideological, positions often get in the way of what, to me, I look at this as an, it's a very complex reality where I think it's very likely we're dealing with probably multiple groups. I would be shocked if there were not because we humanity were of prime interest right now. Yeah. We're, we're going through, you know, we weren't like this for 10,000 or hundred thousand or more years. We were very like, the same and suddenly in about a century we've just completely transformed everything is inside out now and we're now able to land you know probes on mars for god's sake and record it in real time and watch it like that's amazing we're we have intelligent algorithms and computers and digitization and global communication like we take this for granted but yeah. only a couple of years ago like this was impossible so we're re we've remade our whole civilization 
and we've taken massive quantum jumps up in our capability. And I think we're getting a lot of people's attention, the good, the bad, the ugly, that's in our neighborhood. I don't think they're all friendly. I don't think they're all evil. Just like I think it's it's foolish to say, I don't, I trust everyone. It's equally foolish to say, I don't trust anyone. I think we're in a complex reality in which we need to prick up our ears and pay attention to the data and 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 disable our ideologies a bit and our preconceived ideas about what we think you know, people say, well, I don't want to support the military complex and I don't want to support the fear industry. Well, good. So stay within your own little, your own little lane here and look at the world in this one way. And it's the same with the other folks who are like, this is a total threat and, you know, any of this new age woo is nonsense. Like that's equally blind. Yeah. So I think what we have to do is, what are they saying Zen? Have beginner's mind. Oh, I love that. It's one of my favorite yes. books have a well it's it's a concept and it's just like go into this and try to disable your your preconceived convictions there was a writer named robert anton wilson from years ago and uh i read in one of his books he had he was he was an interesting guy but he, he said convictions breed convicts or convictions create convicts which is a weird thing like legally okay so if you're convicted you're a convict but what he was saying is if you have a strong conviction you are a prisoner of that yeah. idea. You're a convict of that idea. And that's, you know, so he's like beginner's mind, have beginner's yeah. mind. And you want to you want to develop ideas and theories, obviously. It's kind of impossible not to, but we don't have to have an ideological, rigid party line about it either. I just don't think anyone's helped by it. And you know, we have it in the whole rest of the world beyond UFOs, and you see it. Um develop it this certainly within the ufo field too and it just i just think it's unfortunate yeah well you know i i know uh, lou and uh chris mellon and others have definitely stated that this is a bipartisan issue um I, at the end of the day we're all human so we're going to have our inclinations but uh i i do hope that as you know as a lot of people hope that when when people realize you know like i'm talking about like the general public realize like yeah there's another intelligence intelligence engaging with us. Some of that, I don't, again, I'm not thinking that there's going to be a whole utopian revolution or something, but, you know, I think that it will wake people up to, to think, okay, we really don't know Jack at this. Yeah. It's a lot of people will, I mean, there's going to be a lot of fear. There'll be a lot of fear and they, you won't need a, a, a deep state to create it. You just went mute. I can't hear you. I, I actually can't hear you. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. Now I hear you. Sorry. So I think there'll be fear and uh, just because that's how people will be, but there will be people eventually, they're going to realize exactly what you said. It's like, whoa, I have, like no one wants to come to that realization, especially if you're better educated. They're the, yeah. they're the toughest ones. Oh man. People with advanced degrees and you know, smarty pants who think like, oh, I'm so smart and they know everything. And like, it's going to be a really hard thing to come to terms with to realize like they have buried their mind on the single most important element of our reality for their entire lifetime. Yeah. And they're not going to want to face that. That's, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. They, they'd rather, they'd rather be fooled by a con artist than be fooled by themselves. Yeah. And, um, no one, no one wants that, but it, that's going to happen.
and it will cause yeah. a reevaluation. Uh, you know, and not for nothing, it's kind of needed at this point, uh, the way things are going, but I'm an optimist. So uh, I'll, uh, it is definitely needed. Yeah. <laughs> I say that is not an optimist. Yeah. We still, <laughs> there we, we go. We, See, look, we're doing it right now. <laughs> we need the, the UFO disclosure is one of the last really good hopes, honestly, that we have to, to do something to this system that is enveloping around us. Yeah, I mean, it's a system in which your grand, your kids, forget your grandchildren, uh, will grow up in a world with not only any privacy, but without an expectation of privacy and without therefore any freedom. Everything will be monitored and it's happening fast. So, um, and in which there's a 24 seven propaganda barrage is being directed at people and in which uh, access to information, you know, the internet was once the, believed to be like the source of all freedom and it's become, it's becoming a prison. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, you know, we need, we've got to do something to fight this. And I do think that breaking a, a breakout of the UFO secrecy still has the potential to, uh, to shock people enough to get them worked up and to want to have some substantial reform, whether yeah, that will well, happen, you know, I'm doubtful, but it's, it's well, again, it happened. is going to create some kind of change. It's just like, you know, how long is that going to take and what is it going to take for something to occur? Cause I, I, I do think it's going to be, there will be a drastic change. I'm not sure in which direction I'm hoping a good one. Um, but you know, especially, you know, from, from, you know, day zero, uh, to, you know, 20 years, you know, the world's going to be a different place. And, uh, you know, it's partially, I guess, on, on us to try to, you know, push things in the right direction to whatever extent we can. Yeah, I agree to the, to the best yeah. of our ability. As long as we, uh, we have our free speech. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was for you. No. <laughs> you know, um, so we, we do have, we do have some, it hasn't yeah. all gone away. So freedom's a matter of degrees and, uh, we still have good freedoms, um, not quite as much as what we had a few years ago, but we still have some. Yeah. Um, but anyways, Rich, uh, thank you so much for coming on here. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to the May 20th event. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Absolutely, James. My pleasure being here as a guest on your program and on your channel. And a big shout out to everyone who subscribes to your channel. All right. Thank you, man. Take All care. Right. Thank you.